Pierced Veil Podcast. I bring you this week arcane weapons of mass destruction and advanced battle technology of the ancients. The Blurred Lines Between Facts and Myth, Part 1. Whether you look at religious texts, historical documents, or word-of-mouth accounts, man has wavered in their understandings of what quantifies intelligence. There is debate on how technology's evolution has progressed throughout human history. Ancient cultures' technical abilities through natural and theoretical sciences adds up to the contemporary era as only one of the pinnacles in the chronological ebbs and flows of humankind. Some can state that we are in a technologically darkened era due to our disconnection from the natural currents flowing from the earth. Others try to prove that we have always progressed and improved our technical ability and scientific knowledge. Ancient people had a habit of using their understandings of science and creativity to both dominate one another and to protect themselves from savage conquest. Some of these weapons have historically believable context while others seem a bit far-fetched to a sheer confidence of its viability in conventional thought. Arrows and flamethrowers were battlefield weapons, but the ancient world contained examples of biological warfare against general populations stretching back to 1500 BC when the Hittites sent plague victims into the lands of their enemies. The ancient world made an important distinction between using disease weapons for purely defensive purposes as opposed to first strikes. While the arcane world's arsenal of biological and chemical weapons was trivial compared with the horrors of the modern world, those weapons raised the same terrifying moral and political dilemmas than as now. Is a bunker buster bomb dropped from the sky more civilized than a clay pot filled with scorpions thrown into an enemy's cave? It's really hard to decide. They both seem pretty bad to me. It really depends if you're in the camp of the end justifying the means, or does the means justify the end? A king in Asia Minor of the 2nd century BC was defeated when Hannibal catapulted live snakes onto his ships. The king remarked that he did not think any general would want to obtain a victory by the use of a means which might in turn be directed against himself. Invention has its worth in our society as it pertains to the creation of beauty and numerous art forms and understandings but it also illustrates man's quest for dominance over the earth and each other. Born in 287 BC, the Greek mathematician Archimedes is one good example. For more than 50 years, Archimedes answered questions to great mathematical and practical problems. He is responsible for calculating pi, creating calculus proofs 2,000 years before calculus itself was invented. He also theorized hydrostatistics 
in which objects lose an amount of weight when they are in water equal to the weight of the fluid they displace. One of Archimedes' most famous quotes is, Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I will move the world. Archimedes used his knowledge of physics to fend off Roman ships approaching the fortified walls of Syracuse. One of the war machines Archimedes created was a giant iron claw operated by almost the entire population of Syracuse from inside the city's walls. Outside, the claw was able to pick up entire Roman ships and plunge them back into the sea. One of his most famous and most disputed weapons was the solar death ray. It was said to have been built from reflective concave surfaces focused to achieve combustion upon attacking ships. The historian Galen was the first to describe the death ray in an account of the attack on Syracuse he wrote more than 350 years after the siege ended. Although other historians recorded the siege in earlier writings, none mentioned the death ray. Because of these earlier emissions of the death ray, the contraption is often viewed as purely myth, fantasy, or exaggeration. However, in 2005, after hearing about this invention, an MIT team managed to cause flash ignition in the patch of a ship where the beams of sunlight were concentrated into a single area. This meant that the temperature of the area had reached 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. The ship caught flame and burnt before the MIT researchers put it out. Also in the 20th century, the inventor Nikola Tesla spoke of a similar weapon before his death. Towards the end of the Roman Empire, a new and emerging weapon came into play with devastating consequences. By 672, the Byzantines perfected an incendiary weapon that could project a plume of fire so intense that it literally incinerated ships within minutes. This mysterious fire was said to be almost inextinguishable, even when it was doused in water. It gave the Byzantines a technological advantage and was responsible for many key military victories. Its formula was closely guarded and was a state secret and still is unknown to this day. These stories are rooted in fact and have written record to back up their era and usage. But the following accounts carry a more enigmatic narrative. In Egypt, one could find 100 to 1,000 tons of desert glass scattered across 100 kilometers of the Sahara Desert. Evidence shows that jewelry crafted from this glass was found in ancient tombs predating its creation before 2000 BC. A crater and the tektite usually dispersed through meteor impact were not found present in this surrounding area by scientists. This left them alarmed and curious. Another example is the forests in Tunguska, Siberia. Apparently in 1908, an explosion caused 18 million trees to be destroyed over an 830 square mile area. A team of researchers analyzed microsamples from the peat bog near the center of the area 
and it showed fragments that may be of extraterrestrial origin. Scientists proposed that a meteor exploded three to six miles above the surface of the Earth, equaling the power of 20 million tons of TNT. But they were not assured of this. This was only one theory. How about in the White Sands Desert, New Mexico? The Manhattan Project tested the first atomic weapon upon a platform. The first nuclear device ever detonated was an implosion-type bomb at the Trinity test site conducted at New Mexico's Alamogordo bombing and gunnery range on the 16th of July in 1945. This explosion disintegrated the tower holding the weapon and transformed the sand into green atomic glass upon the surrounding area. This was very much like what we saw in Egypt. And also in Libya, there's another example of the same thing happening. Here's where myth and legend come into play, both inspiring the future of weaponry and raising questions on its accuracy of truth in human history. Greek hero Hercules slew the multi-headed Hydra. He developed a technology at the heart of today's most pressing international crisis by steeping his arrows in the monster's venom. By accounts in this ancient story, Hercules created the first biological weapon. Toxic arrows became Bronze Age's weapons of terror. Most of the ancient world liked to believe it fought with a code of honor. According to Homer, archers were disdained because they shot safely from afar. Long-range missiles implied unwillingness to face the enemy at close range, and when they were daubed with poison, they seemed even more cowardly. Let's continue on to the Indus Valley, where the civilization Mohenjo-Daro disappeared long ago. Mohenjo-Daro translates into the Mound of the Dead, and is a group of mounds and ruins on the right bank of the Indus River in southern Pakistan lying on the flat alluvial plains. The site contains the remnants of one of two main centers of the ancient Indus civilization circa 2500 to 1700 BC, the other one being Harappa, 400 miles to the northwest. The archaeological importance of the site was first discovered accidentally in 1922, one year after the discovery of Harappa. Subsequent excavations revealed that the mounds contained the remains of what was once the largest city of the Indus civilization. Because of the city's size, about three miles in diameter, and the comparative richness of its monuments and their contents, it has been generally regarded as a capital of an extensive state. Its relationship with Harappa, however, is uncertain, i.e., if the two cities were contemporaneous centers or if one city succeeded the other. Typical of these large planned cities, Wanjodaro, which along with its great buildings, had city streets laid out in a grid. The city is thought to have housed roughly 40,000 people. It had a granary, baths, assembly halls, and towers. 
and the city was divided into two parts. West of the city, there stood a citadel surrounded by a wall. Almost every house in Mohenjo-Daro was set up with one walled-in bathing area equipped with drains to take the used water out connected to a larger drain that emptied into a sewage drain. Many of these bathing areas had watertight floors to keep moisture from seeping into the other rooms nearby or below. They had 80 public toilets connected to a sewer system. Its neighboring Indus Valley cities, Lothal and Harappa, had similar wells, sewer systems, drainage canals, and public baths. Sometime between 1800 and 1700 BC, civilization on the Indus Plain all but vanished, and flooding all but hid the city under a thick layer of silt, 30 feet above the level of the river. When excavations of Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro reached the street level, they discovered 44 skeletons scattered about the cities, many holding hands and lying in the streets as if some instant horrible doom had taken place. People were scattered, unburied of what once was a sprawling metropolis. All these skeletons are thousands of years old, even by traditional archeological standards. The bodies had not decayed or even been eaten by wild animals. Furthermore, there was no apparent cause of a physically violent death. On top of those facts, Soviet scholars found that the skeletons are among the most radioactive ever found, on scale with those at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The ancient, heavily populated city in modern-day Pakistan seems to have been instantly destroyed by an incredible explosion that could have only been caused by an atomic bomb or another weapon equally as powerful. Other cities have been found in northern India that show indications of explosions of great magnitude. One such city, found between the Ganges and the mountains of Raj Mahal, seemed to have been subjected to intense heat. Huge masses of walls and foundations of the ancient city are fused together, literally vitrified. And since there is no indication of a volcanic eruption at Mohenjo-Daro or the other cities, the intense heat to melt clay vessels can only be explained by atomic weaponry or some other unknown weapon of that magnitude. Life in these cities were wiped out entirely. There was an epicenter in Mohenjo-Daro about 50 yards wide where everything was crystallized, fused or melted. 60 yards from the center, the bricks are melted on one side, indicating a blast. This horrific and enigmatic event 4,000 years ago leveled Mohenjo-Daro. An old Hindu manuscript called the Mahabharata describes what may have happened. Here's the quote. White hot smoke that was a thousand times brighter than the sun rose in infinite brilliance and reduced the city to ashes, the account reads. Water boiled, horses and war chariots were burned by the thousands. The corpses of the fallen were mutilated by the terrible heat so that they no longer looked like human beings. The description concludes, it was a terrible sight to see. Never before have we seen such a ghastly weapon." End quote. David Davenport, a British Indian scholar who spent 12 years studying Hindu texts, believed that the end of Mohenjo-Daro was tied to a state of war between the Indo-Aryans, 
who were nomadic newcomers from the Northwest who are thought to have settled in India during the second millennium BC, and the Dravidian, who were Neolithic West Asian farmers from Iran, which conquered and largely displaced the outnumbered native gatherers of India. The Aryans controlled regions where an advanced race alien to these lands were mining minerals and exploiting other natural resources, he believes. Because Mohenjo-Daro was a Dravidian city, the aliens had agreed to destroy Mohenjo on behalf of the Aryans. The aliens needed the friendship of the Aryan king so that they could continue their prospecting and research, explained Davenport. The texts tell us that 30,000 inhabitants of the city were given seven days to get out, a clear warning that everything was about to be destroyed. Obviously, some of these people didn't heed the warning because 44 human skeletons were found there in 1927, just a few years after the city was discovered. The weird thing was that all these skeletons were flattened to the ground. For example, a father, mother, and child were found flattened in the street, face down and still holding hand. The ancient texts refer repeatedly to Vimanas, which translates into a flying car that flies under its own power. Davenport's intriguing theory has met with intense interest in the scientific community. Nationally known expert William Sturm said, the melting of bricks at Mohenjo-Daro could not have been caused by a normal fire. Added Professor Antonio Castellani, a space engineer in Rome, it's possible that what happened at Mohenjo-Daro was not a natural phenomenon. Proponents were quickly drawn to other alleged quotations from the Indian epic Mahabharata, which speaks of doom and destruction. This is from the text. Gurkha, flying a swift and powerful Vimana, hurled a single projectile charged with the power of the universe. An incandescent column of smoke and flame as bright as 10,000 suns rose with all its splendor. It was an unknown weapon, an iron thunderbolt, a gigantic messenger of death, which reduced to ashes the entire race of the Vrishnas and the Andakas. The corpses were so burned as to be unrecognizable. Hair and nails fell out, pottery broke without apparent cause, and the birds turned white. After a few hours, all foodstuffs were infected. To escape from this fire, the soldiers threw themselves in streams to wash themselves and their equipment. This description is indeed unnervingly similar to the effects of an atomic bomb explosion. An incredibly bright blast, a column of rising smoke and fire, fallout, intense shock waves and heat waves, and the effects of radiation poisoning. The Vimanas in the story are in reference to a collection of historical records from ancient India that describe an array of incredible fast-flying machines, temples or palaces, or weapons of technological standpoint that far surpasses those in existence today. The oldest mention of these machines is found in the Sanskrit texts known as the Veda and date back to approximately 1500 BC. A modern translation reads, jumping into space speedily with a craft using fire and water, containing 12 pillars, one wheel, 
three machines, 300 pivots, and 60 instruments. In the Ramayana text, there are references to these flying machines that were used in service of a ruling class. As well as being able to fly within Earth's atmosphere, Vimana were also able to fly into space and travel underwater. In the Mahabharata text, there are descriptions of warplanes that fire sound-seeking missiles and beams of light that destroy anything they touch with their energy. Credit for these machines was attributed to the Yavanas, who are believed to be the ancient Greek civilization. In or around the early 1950s, a more modern text was made available called the Vaimanika Sastra, translating into the science of aeronautics. It was allegedly based on the writings of a great sage, thus giving authenticity to the scientific claims. It is also worth noting that there are claims that the 1960s Russian scientists took a profound interest in the Vimana phenomenon, and strangely enough, it is around this time that they made significant leaps forward in their technological progression. Vimana are not unique to India, but there are references from all over the world. These include the Egyptian Saqqara bird, the pre-Columbian golden airplane models, the Greek Icarus legend, the chariot of Ezekiel, and the Nazca lines. Also the Abadius carvings, the Tassili rock paintings from Algeria, and the Chinese references to Lu Bon's wooden aircraft that flew great distances. Naturally, these references are often dismissed by modern historians as only stories. Could humanity have a collective memory of once being able to fly in antiquity? Or is it a coincidence based on the worldwide wishful thinking of past civilizations? You decide for yourself. It was also speculated that the Mohenjo-Daro civilization perished in an ancient nuclear war fought by the gods through the use of these ancient flying machines. Description in the Vedas and later Indian literature detailed Vimanas on various shapes and sizes in the Vedas. Let's move on to some different subject matter popular in religious texts. This is the story of the Ark of the Covenant and the walls of Jericho. Between 10,000 and 8,000 BC and the Fertile Crescent of the modern-day Jordan Valley was the first city in the world to be surrounded by walls. Made from cooperation of more than one clan with communal labor and having the first tower with steps in written history. They had domesticated animals and agricultural knowledge and this was predating written, language, and pottery. In the shores of the Dead Sea, archaeologist John Garstang found this to be the site for the biblical story of Jericho, where the Israelite Joshua had destroyed the walls with the Ark of the Covenant. The location was up for debate by scholars and wasn't confirmed until the 1960s. The Ark was said to have been a powerful sonic weapon, also a way in which to communicate with God. It had the ability to sustain life and protect those who carried it, and was a source of radioactive emission. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had special attire when coming close to the Ark. They had to wear protective gear for the head, the lungs, heart, and other important areas of the body. This tells us that the Ark of the Covenant was possibly hazardous. 
In Exodus 25.10, Moses receives the command to build an ark of acacia wood. Within this ark were to be placed the tablets of the law which God was able to give to Moses. Upon the top of the ark, probably not as a lid, but above the lid, was a golden plate which two cherubim with raised wings and facing each other covered the ark. From the place between the two cherubim, God promised to speak to Moses as often as he shall give him commands in reference to the Israelites. Moses was instructed to place the broken tablets with the Ten Commandments inside. Other contents believed to have been in the Ark of the Covenant were a pot of manna and an artifact called the Rod of Aaron. As a side note in a roundabout way, this kind of sounds to me like a reactor. According to the statements in the Priestly Code, the Ark of the Covenant was a chest made of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, which is about four feet, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half high, which comes to about 52 inches by 31 inches by 31 inches. It was covered with gold within and without, and it was ornamented with a molding of gold running all around it. At its four feet, rings were added, through which the gold-covered carrying staves were put, which were the poles. Biblical passages to give you some context. This is from Joshua 3.13. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who took the Ark and carried it reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan while the waters flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, which was the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Here's another one from Samuel 5.1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer of Ashdod. They had carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord again. His head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest nor Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. 
When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The Ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon it, and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the Ark and the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel, but after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to the heaven. At the time of the conquest, Jericho was a fortified city surrounded by a wall. The Israelites were told by God to march around the walls of the city of Jericho for six days. And on the seventh day, God commanded them to blow, and it would make the mighty walls crumble before them. And after they did this, the walls of Jericho collapsed. It is important to say that this battle is not supported by archaeological evidence. However, Jericho has been destroyed and rebuilt numerous times since. Other David Wilcock believes scholars today are developing similar technology in order to emulate the occult power of Joshua's trumpet. He says, What's interesting about the Battle of Jericho is that this particular use of the trumpet clearly seems to be the same thing we're seeing with particle ray technology, death ray technology, and thunderbolt technology. It very clearly seems that once again we have an extraterrestrial technology the ancient people had at the ready to use when needed for military. hundred years after the Battle of Jericho, according to the book of Samuel, around 1100 BC, the Israelites went to war with the mighty army of the Philistines, bringing the Ark of the Covenant with them to battle. Since God did not order them to go to war against the Philistine army, God awarded victory to the Philistine army who captured the Ark of the Covenant as it angered him that they believed they could use it as a weapon without his orders. The Ark of the Covenant was very powerful, but it was not allowed to be touched and only priests could carry it. Those who carried the Ark could not see what they were carrying as it was covered and hidden from sight. It was considered as a type of bodyguard for the people who carried it, protecting and providing for them in their journey. The Ark of the Covenant was also a very dangerous relic. Even though it could sustain life, it could also destroy. Today, we know that it would be possible to cause a construction to collapse using sound amplified to a destructive level. So we're left to wonder, did the Ark of the Covenant actually make the walls of Jericho crumble? What was the Ark of the Covenant exactly? Was it truly an ancient religious relic with immense powers? Or is there more to the Ark than what we know? Where exactly is it? This mysterious golden chest has been the center of ancient religious doctrine. 
Archaeologists have been searching for this mysterious object for centuries, but no one has been able to find it so far. One of the most accepted theories of the location of the Ark is that it's not actually hidden, but it's located in a well-guarded place in Axum, Ethiopia, at the Church of St. Mary of Zion. There, a solitary monk who is not allowed to leave the place where the Ark is located has the duty to look after the Church's holiest relic. That'll conclude this part one of the arcane weapons of mass destruction and advanced battle technologies of the ancients. I think it's important to stay safe out there, people. Keep an eye and an ear out and stay aware. And always try to do what's right, even when it's the harder path to travel. It's been my honor to talk to you guys again today, and I wish you all well. Salutations.